every week around the world, preachers and pastors uh, try to figure out how to speak to what is relevant, how to speak to a subject in such a way that people in the pew or in the chairs or out there will uh, see a connection to their daily lives, how, how to show how Scripture addresses the issues and the yearnings of, that we feel, because what we feel is what we start with. And most of us have things we feel badly about. We feel bad about our marriage, or we feel bad about something going on in the world, or we, feel, we all have these things which are symptomatic of the brokenness of our world. So, every week as we study Scripture, it's, it, there's a temptation to, to go to that point of connection, of dissatisfaction with the world we live in. But the irony is, sometimes when we do that, I, I wonder if, if we're not responding to the symptoms and not spending near enough time on the solution. If, if we're focusing on the ointment that removes the pain while ignoring the healing that can come from more major surgery. In other words, when we, when we use Scripture to address those struggles in our life, and it should be used, they're very legitimate, but when, when we focus primarily on what Scripture does for, says for our marriage or our self-esteem or our health or whatever it is that we go to in sermons around the world, that things that are relevant, if we do that to the exclusion of focusing on the ultimate solution, maybe, maybe just maybe, we miss out on a great deal. In other words, my, my point is, while certainly the Bible applies to all of those felt needs in our lives, and certainly we should go and address those from the perspective of Scripture, if we do that, if, if we do that to the point of neglecting the essential truth of who God is and who His Son is and what He's done and what He demands of us, then, then we, we miss the real point. Because... The solution starts and ends with Jesus. And we might learn how to have happy and meaningful and peaceful and lives, but if we don't know Him, it really doesn't matter. And, and so during Holy Week, we're going to focus primarily on just what this week is and, and who He is and what Scripture says about Him. And, and I'm not going to worry a whole lot about whether your self-esteem is improved. Because I, I really do believe that if, if, if you and I got a better sense of who He is and what He's done, and if we, if we responded to that more accurately... And a lot of those other things we get focused on would actually be corrected. So, if you will, we're going to turn to John. And on the noon services, we're going to look at Matthew. But on the two Sundays, we're going to look at John's portrayal of the Holy Week. John chapter 12 is, is the day that we celebrate today when Jesus entered the city and what we often have historically called the triumphal entry of, of Lord into the city of Jerusalem. And our focus is not going to be on particularly how we feel. Our focus is going to be on who He is. The, the passage intentionally begins uh, with an anointing. If you will, look with me at John chapter 12. 
Six days before the Passover, in other words, Saturday, Jesus arrived in Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, a small village. And that's where Lazarus lived. That's the one Jesus had raised from the dead. And here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. One of the other gospels says it's in the home of Simon the leper. And Martha served, that's what Martha did, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. And Mary took a pint of pure nard, roughly 11 ounces in this case, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he would put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus said. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. I know you know that Messiah or Christ means the anointed one. It, and it's, it's related all the way back to the beginning of the nation of Israel, that the king would have been anointed as the one who would be king. It was a way of separating someone out so that they would be signified as the one who would be king. And here as Jesus is about to begin this final week of his life on earth, he is anointed, but this anointing is unusual. It is not on his head, it is on his feet, because Mary, better than almost anyone during Jesus' life, understands that he is worthy of worship. And, and as he's reclining at the table, she pours this nard. Nard was derived from a root that was only found in the northern mountains of India. And you can imagine what it would cost. In fact, Judas himself says it was worth one year's labor. Now, depending on which minimum wage you accept today, and we've got a lot of them, that's somewhere between twenty and thirty or forty thousand dollars worth of perfume she poured out on his feet. It's obsessive. It's extreme. It, it's, it's intended to be shocking. It, it's one of those things you read it and you think, come on, Jesus, do you realize? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of offensively extreme, right? But what does God deserve? How much does worship of God deserve? Just enough? Just enough? And, and she does something shocking. She loses her hair because it would have been kept up in accordance with Jewish custom, and she uses her own hair to wipe his feet. Hair, a woman to loosen her hair would have been somewhat scandalous, but for her to do it, it was, a, it was not in any way sensual. It was, a, it was a way to show her total and complete devotion to him. And Judas, who had been one of the crowd, and, and uh, by all accounts, everybody trusted him. They, they had him handle the money. He steps forward, and as often the case in the church, he, he made his sin sound spiritual. Oh, Lord, we shouldn't do that. That money could have been used for the poor. But in retrospect, John knows the truth about Judas. He said, he said that because he had his hand in the till. 
It, it wasn't that he was concerned for the poor, and it certainly didn't result in him seeing Jesus as worthy of honor. It was, in fact, a symptom of the fact that he was stealing from them. And by the way, can I tell you something I've learned? Big sin is never a surprise. You know, when a pastor falls in immorality or there's a scandal in the church from uh, mishandling funds or, or when someone that we all trust suddenly shows up to be horribly broken, we're tempted to say, how did that happen overnight? My experience is it never happens overnight. That in secret, there has been a steady decline of disobedience, little tiny steps of falling, uh, compromises in what we believe. And, and, and what we convince ourselves is they're little tiny steps or they're not a big deal. And then one day, we're not that far off from the devastating disobedience. I've heard it described when men came in and talked about their flirtations with someone at work, and then suddenly they found themselves in this compromised position, you think, but, but don't you see that you took lots of little steps to that? Judas is an example of that. He didn't suddenly wake up one day and say he would deny the Lord. He was a thief and a liar who had, under the cover of secrecy, been compromising his commitments for a long time. That's why the little steps matter. Those little compromises that we are so good at overlooking matter because they are the road to compromise of what we really believe. So Judas, Judas sounds terribly spiritual. Lord, we could have used that money to feed the poor. And Jesus said, you'll, the poor you'll always have with you. Now, some misunderstand that and think, well, Jesus is saying we can neglect the poor. He's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15. Now, I'll read it to you so you make sure we have it in context of what it means. In Deuteronomy 15, 7, in the law, it says, there, if there is a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God has given you, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought well, the, quote, the seventh year, the year for canceling debts is near so that you do not show ill will toward your needy brother in giving nothing. In other words, at the Sabbath year, debts were forgiven. And so he says, don't use the loophole, don't worry about that loophole that he wouldn't have to pay you back if it's close to the seventh year. And by the way, in Israel, you could not charge interest. You could loan to a fellow, fellow Israelite without interest with the hope that they would repay you, except for if the Sabbath year took it away. And that's why he interchanges the word lend and give, because often lending had the effect of giving. Verse 10, give generously to him and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you put to your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. The poor you will have with you. Therefore, be open-handed toward your brothers and toward the poor and needy in your land. Don't, don't misunderstand Jesus' quotation. It's not an encouragement to neglect the poor. It is an acknowledgement that we will always have the poor and therefore there is always the opportunity to respond. But he says there's something else much more important right now. And that is that Jesus says, I am here. I am here. Sad to say, for many of us, the presence of Jesus is, is not that big a fact. What really matters to us is the situation we find ourselves in. 
And, and he has value only to the extent he addresses our needs. But Jesus doesn't view it that way. He, he literally believes that his presence is the most significant issue. And by the way, that, that begs a question in, in our own worship. Is the focus on whether we enjoy it or it meets our needs or is, is the focus on the presence of Christ and the acknowledgement of who he is? In other words, it's very tempting to make our faith all about us and make Jesus tangential to it. Even, even worship, quote-unquote, which is totally intended to be focused on Him and bringing Him honor and glory can become really about us and how we feel and whether the music's just right. And Jesus has the audacity to say, I understand you'll always have the poor, but I'm here. And that changes everything. He continues in verse 9, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him also. Uh, he's just made a huge statement about Jesus' enemies. Jesus' enemies were not concerned about the truth. Do you hear me? They were not concerned about the truth. They weren't trying to deny that Jesus had raised him from the dead. And the fact that Jesus raised him from the dead was not the primary issue. The problem with Lazarus is because of him they were losing and far too often, the spiritual realities in which we battle, the, the struggles that we have with the world aren't about the truth. I said to a young man years ago, he said, I'm struggling with the truth of Scripture. I said, great. What, what is it you're struggling? Well, whether, whether those miracles could happen. I said, great. At that time, Harold Honer attended here, who was a world-renowned scholar. He had doctors from, doctorates from Europe and America. I said, I, I know I'm not smart, but I'll introduce you to this world-renowned scholar, and, and he can sit down and work through these issues as you struggle with the truth. He said, well, I don't want to do that. And I said, so you're not struggling at all. Because if you were struggling, you would, you would find out. And, and the reality is, most of us, it's not whether it's true or not, it's whether we want to submit to it or not that we struggle with. The, the religious leaders weren't doubting that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They just wanted him dead again so that he didn't cause a problem for him. Because of what his life said about who Jesus is. So John begins the story of the beginning of, of Holy Week with the anointing of Jesus as the King, the Messiah, but done so in a way that reflects not just submission but worship. Verse 12, we see the beginning of the royal entrance. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, so they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, from Psalm 118 we read earlier. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, for your king is coming, seated on a donkey coat. 
The Psalms of the Ascent, Psalm 118 and the surrounding Psalms were sung and celebrated in the holy days as they would go up to Jerusalem. They would recite and sing these Psalms, recognizing the coming of the Lord to visit to Jerusalem in the day of his holy coming. And, and so they sang these, and here the people who saw Jesus coming recognized that he was fulfillment of the coming of the name of the Lord, and so they sang them, Hosanna, and they took palm branches, which were referred to in the psalm, and they laid them before him because that's what they did for victorious king. Now, the palm branches are primarily associated with the Feast of the Tabernacle, but by this time, they were using them on all the worship, and the people from Galilee would have come through Jericho, and Jericho is where they got the palm leaves at that time on their way up to Israel, so they would have had palm leaves, and seeing Jesus come, crowds began to respond. So I can put this in perspective. That we estimate that normally the city of Jerusalem had up to 100,000 people living there in the general facility. But on the day of Passover, modern scholars estimate that a million people would have been there. That would have been 900,000 visitors. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said 2.5 million. But he was prone to exaggeration. He grew up in Texas. But even if it's only a million, you, you, you see that this small area up on a hill would have been packed with people. And Jesus takes a young donkey colt. According to the other gospels, he sends the disciples, telling them where they will find them, and he rides a donkey into town. And that seems to us kind of odd. But we don't know the prophecies of the book of Zechariah or, for that matter, of Deuteronomy. I'd always heard this was fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, but the use of the donkey goes back to Genesis chapter 49 where Moses declaring the future of the tribes. And when he comes to Judah, it says, the scepter, the sign of the king, will not depart from the tribe of Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his coat to the choicest branch, and he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. The donkey had been associated with the king from Judah throughout history that when he came, he would ride on a donkey, a sign of peace and not war. Zechariah takes that idea further, beginning in verse 8 of chapter 9, it says, but I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people, for now I am keeping watch. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fall of a donkey. And I'll take away the chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His will, will, rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from waterless pit. So return to your fortresses, O prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. Jesus chooses a donkey because Jesus is proclaiming by his actions that he is the fulfillment of the promise about the king who would come from Judah, the king who would come to Israel riding on a colt of a donkey. 
the one who would ultimately bring peace and righteousness to the nations. It is just as the anointing was the anointing of a king, the the donkey was the ride of the king from the tribe of Judah who, who would demonstrate what his real mission was. Verse 13, and at first his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus up from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word so that many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. And the Pharisees said to one another, this is getting us nowhere. Look what it says. The whole world has gone after him. Why was Jesus resisted? Because he was winning his enemies didn't question the reality of who he was or the reality of what he had done or the miracles that he had accomplished. They, they fought him because he was threatening the status quo. And by the way, anytime Jesus steps in, he threatens the status quo. He just messes everything up because he doesn't leave anything the same. See, our, our understanding of what's good and right and wrong is, is rooted in our flesh, but, but when he comes, he turns all of that upside down. So he comes as a ruler, but he comes as a ruler who serves and gives his life. It turns the whole idea on its head, right? He comes as a victorious warrior, but he comes riding a donkey of peace turns everything up on its head. Jesus doesn't leave anything the way it was, and yet we spend so much of our time trying to force him into our categories so he doesn't mess up our lives. The Pharisees said, good grief, we're losing. Everyone's going after him. The whole world, they said. So John agrees with him. Look at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip. Notice, they said the whole world. They met all the Jews. John says, oh, I'll up you from that. Even the Greeks are coming because Jesus' mission is not just to the Jews. It's to the Jew first, but also to the Greeks. And John demonstrates that he is king, not just to the nation of Israel, but he is king over all of humankind. So the Jews, the Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Because this is a king who's not just a king of a small region in the Middle East. He has ultimately come to be king over all humankind. So the, uh, the book of Philippians says, says that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is God. It's not an option. It, it, Jesus isn't intending to be comfortable here. He's demonstrating that he is, in fact, king. In verse 23, we see him being lifted up. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 
And I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me where I am. My servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. See how he's, he's, he's taken all of our understanding and, and he's messing it up? He said, you know, a seed dies and gets buried in order to produce fruit. And, and in many ways, that's a prophecy of what he's about to do. He's about to die and be buried so that he can come alive again and produce the fruit of salvation in the lives of those who trust him as well as ultimately in the whole world, all of creation. He, is, he has come to fix the mess that we have created with human sin. But, but he says that even in, in normal life, it is death that changes things. And the application to you and me is that whoever would want to save his life must lose it. There is a giving up of control, a giving up of our own opinions and in order that we might submit to him in order to gain what he promises. And many of us uh, keep trying to get Jesus to fix those symptoms but we try to do it while ignoring Jesus. We, we want him to make our lives better, but we don't want him to intrude too deeply into our lives. We, we want him to make us feel better, but we don't understand that he came to do so much more than that. Because he is the king, the one who reigns over all of the earth. So it continues, verse 27, now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then the voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. And the crowd that was there and heard it said it had thunders, and others said an angel spoke. Many believe that that is alluding to the voice of God at Sinai, because at Sinai, Moses gave the law, and through Jesus' law, been superseded through grace. Jesus said, that voice was for your benefit, not mine. For now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of the world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And he said this so to show what kind of death he was going to die. And the crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Know that they understood that he was speaking of his death. They understood he was speaking of the crucifixion. Who is this Son of Man? Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. So walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know what he, where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of the light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is an allusion to the light of John chapter 1. Uh, John has brilliantly introduced the subject of light. He was the true light which enlightens every man. And now he comes back to that theme at the end of the story. Finally, the response of the king in verse 27. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. See, they had seen the miracles. Every once in a while you'll have someone say, well, if I could have just seen what Jesus did, it'd be easier for me to believe. Thomas tried that too. 
If I, if I could just thrust my hand in his side and, and, and feel the wounds in his hands. But the reality is that's not the issue. The reality is that it's, it's, it's the struggle of the human heart to believe because that would mean submission to the truth about who God is and therefore the truth of who we are. This is to fulfill the word of Isaiah, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. But at the same time, many, even among the leaders, did believe in him, but because of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess their faith, for they would be put out of the synagogue, for they love the praise from men more than the praise from God. Doesn't that fit you and me? Isn't it true that oftentimes we are fearful to speak up or live the sacrificial life he's called us to do because we just don't want to be embarrassed by the world in which we live? Jesus cried out, when a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but also the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that one who believes in me shall not stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my word but does not keep them, I don't judge him, for I didn't come to judge the world, but to save it. Why did Jesus come? To save the world. To save the world. Not just you and me. Not just you and me to feel better. He came to make right what is wrong with the world. Beginning with my heart, beginning with your heart, beginning with the individual brokenness that we each feel. But much more than that. And according to Scripture, in the final times, he will make right everything that's wrong. It's not just about my personal spiritual satisfaction. He has ultimately come as the king who will, in the final days, bring judgment on all evil. And the only ones who won't experience that judgment are the ones who, by placing their trust in him, allow God's judgment on Jesus to be enough. We long for justice and judgment but we don't long for it on ourselves. We long for it on everyone else. We long for it in our political system. We long for it in the brokenness of the world around us, but we want to be exempted. The only way we can be exempted is if we place our trust and hope in him, that Jesus took the justice upon himself. He paid the price on the cross. It's not that we're exempted from the judgment. It's that he receives it in our place. And there will be a day in the last days when he will come again to judge the living and the dead, when he will come to bring judgment, not just on individuals, but on all that is wrong with the world, because he came to save the world. And the only way the world can be saved is for the evil that is in the world to be judged. And we're so used to it, we don't even see it all. That's why he came. And that's why when you come to know Christ and the more you walk with him, the more you not only yearn for him to fix your individual problems, but you yearn for him to return to bring peace and righteousness and judgment as he's promised. But that yearning should also produce in us a desperate need to tell others how they can avoid that judgment. 
See, that's why when we focus just on the symptoms of our sin and ask Jesus to make our self-esteem better and make our marriage better and make us feel better and all those other things which are legitimate, but when we focus on that and not at the root issue of coming to love the one for whom we were made, of, of bringing ourselves into conformity with His will, until we do that, we're only addressing the symptoms and not the problem because the problem is that, that we are living apart from his will, and he made us for that very thing. In other words, he could be the answer man. He could sit down with you and me individually, and at our request, he could fix all those things that bother us, those people at work and those people at home and our health and our, how we feel. But the reality is the most significant thing he's done has introduced himself, written into our, our city. And the most important thing we can do is come to grips with who he is. Because he's the one that came to save the world. This holy season, the, God forbid that we focus on, on making Jesus simply a solution to life's ills. And, and God forbid that we'll lose sight of the fact that he came in on a donkey because he is the king, the God of the universe, the one who made things as they should be, who put in us a yearning for what should be and will ultimately bring about the very things we yearn for. And if we neglect him, we neglect the very solution. Please pray with me. Father, forgive us that we sometimes make you a means when you should be the end. We look at you for what you can do for us rather than who you are and what that means to us. And we yearn for justice and judgment without looking at our own need before you. For those of us, Lord, who don't know you, I pray today that we would consider what Scripture says. Consider what your son offers. And for those of us who claim to know you, Lord, please today remind us that you are the most important fact. In Jesus' name, amen.